Welcome to another episode of GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. In every crisis lies an opportunity for conspiracy theorists and denialists to confuse the public about whatever's going on in the world. Whether it's climate change or a global pandemic or vaccines, fake news and disinformation are as rife as ever, and scientists have a real battle on their hands to separate fact from fiction and protect public trust in their work. In today's episode, we're joined by the editor-in-chief of Science Magazine, Holden Thorpe, to explore how scientists can win that battle. Leading the conversation is our host for this episode, scientist and climate change mitigation expert, Amy Duchel. We are here today with Dr. Holden Thorpe, editor-in-chief of the science family of, of journals, including Science Magazine. Um, Holden is a chemist, inventor, musician, professor, entrepreneur, you know, one of these super people. Um, and prior to his role at science, he's held many other leadership positions, including as provost of Washington University in St. Louis and chancellor of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill um, in the US. So Science Magazine is one of the most widely read and cited publications in the world. It has an impact factor of 41, meaning that any article published there will be cited on average 41 times by other researchers, which is an order of magnitude larger than most other scientific journals. Uh, importantly, it's not only other scientists reading these articles. Uh, messages are picked up broadly by media, used by decision makers. And so if you can publish in science, it's considered a way that, that we as researchers can can make a difference one way that we can make a difference um, as such it's highly competitive in 2019 just over six percent of the original research articles submitted were were actually accepted for publication um, and and these days the journal couldn't be more important so much of the daily news that we're reading and seeing on um, our evolving understanding of COVID-19 has passed by the desk of, of Dr. Holden Thorpe and his colleagues first. So he's in a, a unique position right now and, and um, kind of a bit of a star. So we're really lucky to, to I, I feel highly honored to be here today with, with you, um, Holden, and, and thank you for taking the time to be at the Global Landscape Forum today. You bet. It's great to be here. And, and thanks to you for the important science that you do because how science relates to the locations that it's in and the people that are there is incredibly important. So thank you for, for what you do for science as well. So, you know, I just gave a big grand introduction to, to Science Magazine, um, but it would be interesting to hear from you as an insider, um, you know, what makes Science Magazine and the Science Family of Journals so unique and exceptional? Yeah, thanks. Well, it's an honor to be here to talk to you and to, to represent uh, the science family of journals. I've been the editor-in-chief for about uh, seven months. Uh, it was an interesting time to come on. Thankfully, I had uh, six months with my colleagues before we went to work from home. Uh, so I got uh, to, to interact in person with the, the brilliant people who have made, long before I got there, Science Magazine and the Science Family of Journals what it is today. We have a pretty small uh, group of journals, only six. Our, our big uh, peers, Nature and, and Elsevier, have many, many, many more journals. Uh, and we're a society journal. We don't, uh, if, if Science Magazine 
uh, generates more revenue than uh, we spend, that surplus goes to fund the great work of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in promoting science literacy and ar arguing for and advocating for changes in science policy. And so, um, you know, we have a double, <laughs> doubly important thing to do. We, we drive science and science awareness, but we also uh, help enable the great work of the AAAS in advocating for scientific literacy and science and, and policy. Uh, the thing that uh, I think a lot of people would probably imagine could be true, but maybe wouldn't really see uh, until you get to see it firsthand is that the, the editors that we have who are doing this extraordinary task that you described of taking 12,000 papers every year and figuring out which 700 of them we're gonna publish uh, are extremely knowledgeable and capable scientists. They're different from laboratory scientists because they're much broader, but they read even more papers really than almost any, uh, anybody in any other part of science would. And so the amount of things that they know and the extraordinary experience and judgment they have is really a, a privilege to be part of. And the breadth, which goes all the way from social science to quantum computing uh, and everything in between is really inspiring just to see constantly all the new things that we have. But science doesn't just publish research. We have uh, our insight section, which is very important commentary about science and science policy. Uh, and that includes the editorial page that I write for now almost every, every week uh, myself. Uh, and then we have science news. And uh, particularly with COVID, the, the reporters that we have that have spent their lives uh, learning the beats of infectious diseases are now some of the most sought after reporters in, in all of journalism. And the way it works is that the news uh, section is editorially independent from research. So uh, I don't direct uh, what they write about, but I strategize with them. And you know, if, if anybody has any questions about what they write, I help them figure out how to respond to that. So it's really an amazing ride to be the editor in chief of science and especially working from home and covering a pandemic and living through the extraordinary times uh, where science is so important right now. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, um, it truly is. And you know, over the past few months, you've, you've written these bold editorials um, that you mentioned, these weekly editorials, I, I follow them. And um, I guess the, the do us a favor is the one maybe that got the most circulation where you really called out Donald Trump about the, the need for respect of science and then the scientific process. Um, but there was another editorial from late March that, that you wrote that actually stuck with me. Um, it was entitled Under Promise Over Deliver. And you know, you discussed how there could be substantial increase in public interest and trust in science, you know, given its role in, in the current crisis and, and understanding the current crisis, but that on the flip side, if the science doesn't meet public expectations or if politicians are promoting false hope or unrealistic timelines for treatments and vaccines that, that actually the consequences for science itself could be quite negative. Um, you know, that was over two months ago. It feels like light years ago at this mm -hmm. point. 
Um, but what is your take on the under promise over deliver message now? Yeah, I'm worried. Uh, I'm, um, the, the reasons that I wrote that uh, piece are, are still with us, unfortunately. Uh, you know, science is up against a machine of misinformation and it's digitally sophisticated uh, and it's been building for 50 years ever since uh, we first started seeing politicians, you know, mostly on the right, uh, get political advantage by attacking uh, science around mostly the environment. But if you see clim climate denial, anti-vaccination uh, movements, and now um, you know people kind of rejecting what we're saying about coronavirus, uh, that is something that is very sophisticated and very targeted uh, against us. And a lot of times I, I hear from people who say, well, you know, we're just not telling our story well enough. Well, I don't, I don't buy that. Uh, if, if we publish a paper in science, uh, that's like taking it and, and shooting it out of a cannon uh, because it gets, you know, depending on what it's about, it can get all over the news and lots of people know about it. Um, and as good as all of that is, it's not really a match for the digitally sophisticated misinformation machine that we sometimes find ourselves up against. And you're seeing that play out uh, with coronavirus in a number of uh, respects. One is that people don't understand that science is a living process carried out by human beings. And we start off in one place and we do experiments and we come to a different place. And you know, the easiest thing to see about that here is you know, when when we started with COVID-19, people were worried that it was mostly being uh, transmitted by uh, transferring on surfaces. And so we were talking a lot about washing our hands and packages and stuff like that. But over the last two months, we figured out that uh, it mostly goes through the air. So two months ago, Tony Fauci said, you don't need to wear masks. Now he's saying you do need to wear masks. To scientists, that makes perfect sense that we would evolve in our understanding. But the people who want to say we don't know what we're doing are saying, well, are pointing out that two months ago we said something different than we say now. Well, that isn't, that's just because science is going through its normal course of action. Um, and so that, you know, that's kind of scary that this is there's so much emphasis on science right now that it's an opportunity to for people to take the natural course of science scientific inquiry and use it against us um, another maybe more uh challenging one is that you know we're now seeing the last few days <clears throat> a private company that produced fake data that were, were used in some of the hydroxychloroquine trials um, so that's a malicious and, and terrible thing that, that these folks did. Um, now, you know, the fact that we are just now figuring that out, uh, and my heart goes out to my colleagues at The Lancet, for example, who've had to deal with this, um, you know, the good news is science found it. We did exactly what we normally do. 
but now this is going to be used also to say that uh, you know we shouldn't be trusted. And so that's why being very, very careful about what it is that we know and what we don't know uh, is so important. And so that's why I wrote that piece. And I, I am worried that um, even if even if we solve this whole thing, that um, you know we'll be accused of overreacting and not knowing what we're talking about, and that'll be used in these longer-term battles we have, like. Uh, like climate change to undermine uh, scientific inquiry in our process. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I think those of us who work on climate change, you know, we're, we're constantly thinking about the parallels between the COVID-19 crisis and the climate crisis. And especially, you know, this, what you've mentioned, the active lobbying um, against scientific evidence, in fact, um, you know, ignoring, denying, and lobbying against, to, to be able to continue with business as usual. Um, you know, our hope is that, you know, this renewed attention on science can help the way that we, we address climate change. But I, you know, <laughs> let's see, right? Yeah, we just have to keep our head down and do the best we can. Um, you know, I guess what makes me a little um, more hopeful is that I, th I think the, there are some curves that are going against us. but it doesn't have to be the case that those curves just keep going up forever. It could be that there's an asymptote out there that will eventually hit. Uh, the, the number of people who trust science seems to be pretty stable. Um, you know, it's between 70 and 80%. That's scary because that means there's 20 or 30% of the people who have been convinced by bots and cable news and politicians not to, not to trust us. Um, but hopefully, you know, there, there's, a, there's a floor there on, uh, on how low uh, support for science can go. Yeah. Only time will tell us whether that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, we're in this storytelling track here. And, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, a publication in, in Science Magazine is like shooting a you know, cannon out into the world and, <laughs> and uh, it gets a lot of attention. But something interesting that um, John Vidal of The Guardian said yesterday during a similar session, um, you know, that a lot of the, and he's a journalist, I mean, a lot of the language, um, you know, scientific and environmental language, in fact, it's almost meant to not be understood um, by, by regular people or people who are not specialized. And so, you know, his role, you know, he went on to say that, you know, sort of media and can serve as a vector of clarifying and helping convey some of these technical messages. So, you know, what, you know, science, because there's such a close connection with the media and you have science news, you know, how do you see media and other means of communication um, influencing sort of helping the public understand science better? Yeah, so I, I think uh, the great science journalists, uh, certainly the ones who work for us, but we do have respect for a lot of other science journalists at other places. I mean, STAT has some outstanding people and Carl Zimmer at the New York Times does a really great job. Uh, Laurie Garrett uh, does an excellent job uh, right now. Uh, there are a lot of people like this that we have. Helen Branswell at STAT is really superb. And they're playing a very important role because there are a few scientists who are at the bench who are really good at putting things in context for the public. 
but uh, that's not really what we select for when we go to find people who are going to produce creative and important science. If they have that, that's that's a good thing, and we need to get them out in front of people. Um, but you know, a lot of a lot of scientists, we love our jargon and our ways of graphing things and our bizarre way of writing up uh, <coughs> scientific papers. And so we're very dependent on uh, journalism to provide that bridge. And so at science, for example, we have journalists who are out excellent at explaining things to a broader audience, but we mostly think of our audience as scientists and other disciplines who are reading about something outside their field. Yeah. That's what we think of as our core audience. So when John Cohen uh, writes a COVID paper, he's writing something that someone who's a physicist can understand, not necessarily someone who is in the broader public. Now we've had a lot of stories that have escaped the gravitational pull of the earth and, and gotten millions of views uh, from the broader public uh, about coronavirus. And I think that's because of the expert way that they were done. Um, but, uh, you know, we need the journalists kind of the next notch over <laughs> to take what we produce and uh, do something with it for, um, for the rest of the public. And that's a very complicated and important process. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, switching a little bit, just continuing the, the conversation, I, you know, sort of COVID-related research aside, um, you know, you've, you've got such a broad spectrum of understanding of what's being published because of your role. Um, you know, what areas of research do you see that are really taking off um, at the moment that you think will impact the future of, of how we do things? I mean, especially if it as relates possibly to um, environmental topics, since we are in the Global Landscapes Forum, but, but not necessarily. Sure. Yeah, well, I think the, um, so I think a lot of things with artificial intelligence uh, are going to be very important and uh, how that is, how big data are used for with satellite imagery and um, high sophisticated digital techniques to understand what's going on uh, in the environment uh, is very important uh, and has a lot of potential. Uh, so we see a lot of papers of with satellite images of industrial activity or uh, changes in the landscape and things like that uh, that uh, uh, my, my colleagues who handle that for us uh, do, and also analyzing um, analyzing uh, pollutants in the oceans or in the air uh, using related techniques. You know, we have a lot more sophistication now about all of that. Uh, using genetics to look at biodiversity and, you know, large genome-wide association studies that can be used to analyze the effects of changes in the environment uh, on uh, the health of people read out through their genomes. Uh, and then, you know, we're seeing social science, you know, Science Magazine does publish social science. We don't have a ton of uh, social science papers, but we have a great editor uh, who, whose remit is dedicated to that. And we've had, they tend to be very high profile papers when we publish them. Uh, and so, you know, the use of, of large data tools 
to analyze uh, things in the social sciences, I think also bears on a lot of the topics that, that your folks are interested in. Uh, you know, moving, moving to some of the other fields, certainly in biomedicine, uh, you know, we've had this explosion of information uh, because we have a technique called cryo-EM that allows us to determine the structures of biomolecules um, much more rapidly than in the past. And that has uh, played a big part in the COVID uh, story. But I think also, you know, across all areas of science, cancer Im immunotherapy is still very important, uh, just really at the beginning stages. Uh, and CRISPR uh, is another area where science has been very active in genetics. And then in the physical sciences, um, there's a class of materials called perovskites that are very useful in catalysis. And uh, there's a lot of activity in science around those. So that's a few things. Yeah, that's great. I think people are taking notes in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I want to I want to leave time, you know, for audience participation here. So please, all of you out there, send your comments, send your questions. We're going to get to that. Um, I I just I have another sort of burning question, just because of what's happening now, also in terms of um, the protests that are happening really worldwide. Um, you know, given the recent um, tragedies of of the killing of George Floyd and and many other Black people at the hands of police in the U.S. in Brazil elsewhere and scientists and scientific organizations are actively speaking out against against racism and the need for for systemic change in our institutions and you know this includes the american association for the advancement of science you know where you're housed and um we we all in our ways have 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 a part to play um, in in changing this in in listening learning self-reflecting and, and trying to affect change. Um, you know, in your career, you, you've placed enormous importance on enhancing diversity and inclusion in science, and that's part of this. Um, you, what concrete steps are you taking um, in your role as editor-in-chief of science to, to address racism, you know, and other structural inequalities in the scientific community? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, uh, police brutality and the brutal killing of George Floyd and so many others is is unacceptable and it's devastating. And for uh, the people who particularly are targeted by structural racism, uh, you know, my my thoughts are with them. And uh, you know, I'm I'm energized that the little part of the world that I control needs to do a lot more. Um, but um, you know, we need to make sure that we're taking care of each other in these these challenging times. And science uh, has a lot still to reflect on. Uh, you know, before I came to science, uh, I was focused on addressing these issues in universities. And there, you know, trying to uh, make sure people of color had access to a college education and thrived uh, in higher education and could imagine themselves uh, in the future, uh, you know, those were the kinds of things that I was focused on and making sure that we built an administration that reflected the populations that uh, we served. Um, and in science, there are a lot of issues and I'm just at the beginning of trying to figure out how Science Magazine can influence those. But if you think about uh, the problems 
that science with a small s, the world of science has. We've done a terrible job of including uh, marginalized populations in science. Uh, we don't have adequate representation in uh, PI roles or in leadership roles or even, even in graduate school. And that's because, you know, we send a lot of messages that aren't welcoming. We know the way we teach science by droning on and on and walk, writing on a chalkboard. You know, that's something that was invented when it was just people who look like me who are in college. And we haven't updated that to account for the fact that we're trying to serve more diverse populations. Uh, and <clears throat> there's still a lot of uh, abuse and inappropriate behavior that goes on in the world of science. And we, we write about that a lot in the journal. And uh, we're also getting a lot of information and we've had news stories about this, that the areas of science that are more likely to attract uh, people of color are historically underfunded. And you can't ask for a better example of structural racism than that, that's the structure. Uh, of science that is uh, causing uh, folks to have less success. So we're, we're trying to figure out how can we use our uh, amplification methods to bring attention to areas of science that have been traditionally underfunded. And, you know, we, I have written before all this happened an editorial about how we need to update our teaching, but we probably need to publish papers about uh, how that can be done. Uh, and as a lot of uh, excellent leaders have said uh, across higher education uh, and across the world of science, you know, we need to look, this isn't just a problem about police brutality. Of course, that is very important and um, we, should, we should be empathetic uh, and engaged in trying to change that. But the world of science needs to look in the mirror as well. And uh, we'll be listening to people and thinking about ways that Science Magazine and the family of journals can address that in the months to come. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, so I, I, I will stop talking, <laughs> stop asking <laughs> questions. I will, I will bring questions in now from, from the audience. Um, and I'm getting those filtered here through chat. So let me <laughs> see if I can, if I can do this. Um, okay, so. We've got another, it's a, it's a bit of a similar kind of question to what we were talking about earlier, but, but a different take. It's a bit of this, um, you know, do us a favor uh, kind mm -hmm. of <laughs> understanding and respecting science. But the question is, you know, um, the public kind of expecting immediate solutions from, from science or, or policymakers expecting uh, immediate solutions, you know, um, in, in the time of crisis. So find a vaccine, um, you know, rather than, than thinking about prevention and sort of the long game. So, um, you know, how, how can we keep our eye on the ball of the long game and sort of, you know, keep, you said, keep our heads down, keep doing the good work while responding to these immediate needs and, and engaging in fact with, with decision makers and the public who really, they want answers and they're asking for science in fact. So, could just yeah. keep going with so that. I mean, as far as as far as COVID and the vaccine is concerned, you know, we ran a piece from um, uh, Mike Cohen and Larry Corey, who were two of the people who uh, really contributed a lot to um, uh, the success that we finally had against some po similar political challenges with HIV. And 
what they uh, lay out in their piece is that it's going to take three different things. It's going to take behavior, social distancing and wearing masks. It's going to take drugs, which ultimately I think will be antibodies that are uh, against the, the, the spike protein of the, of the coronavirus and vaccines. None of those things are going to do the job on their own. So one of the things we're fighting against is this narrative out there that says, when we get a vaccine, uh, then life's going to go back to normal. And I don't, that isn't true uh, based on the people that I talk to. If we're lucky, the vaccine will be 60 or 70% effective. We may have to get two shots. We've got to give that to billions of people. Uh, and so even if we knew what it was right now, uh, the years that it would take to, to implement that, and especially to do it uh, not in the United States, but in uh, places where you know, it's going to be much even harder, uh, and those folks deserve the vaccine just as much as anybody else. Um, that the 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 switch getting flipped with the vaccine is is not out there in our future, and so we need to try to tell uh, people that as best we can, and to invite them to start figuring out new ways uh, to to behave and act. And, you know, I'm very encouraged about um, the kind of session that we're having right now. I wrote an editorial before we knew about COVID saying it was time to start rethinking scientific conferences so that, uh, you know, we could do a better job for the environment and also give more people the opportunity to attend conferences. Uh, I think now we're, we're having real-time tests of that. I'm pretty encouraged uh, about that so far. So those kinds of behavioral changes, you know, we need to model that um, and uh, we need to try to get people to understand that this is a multi, uh, this is going to take multiple things and, you know, getting back to the theme of what we're talking about, climate change is, is the same story. We need to learn to use less carbon. We need to um, think about new ways of, of engineering, doing geoengineering or just engineering things that, that uh, contribute to anthropogenic degradation. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, it's a mixture of technology and behavior that's going to uh, resolve the climate crisis. And it's a mixture of technology and behavior that are going to resolve COVID. So we just can't report, repeat those things enough. And to the extent that we can get our friends in the media who have wider audiences to amplify that, uh, that's all to the good. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, so we're getting, it, it seems, a lot of questions about this mm -hmm. misinformation idea, and maybe that even connects to people are going to be more online. People are going to be getting information from all kinds of places. Um, you know, you talked about this, these massive misinformation campaigns, in fact. Um, you know, how can we build defenses for this? Um, you know, how can we weed out the false research, the, the, the misinformation? I mean, as we increasingly, in fact, become more digital. Yeah, I mean, look, the, there's, there's no replacement for political change as the mechanism for this. I can write the best editorials in the world, and I can, you know, we, we, we've had a paper uh, from Mark Lipsitch's lab about uh, 
social distancing that was, you know, as, as viewed as many times as we've ever had a paper. The night it came out, there were, there were five co-authors, co four of them were in each hour of prime time in CNN. Um, so we can't do any better than that, all right? That, that's as much scientific information as we can get out there in the world. And that's, that's no match for uh, the, the misinformation machine uh, that we're up against that's international. And, you know, like I said, this has been building. Uh, we ran an editorial about the anniversary of Earth Day that a lot of your uh, readers probably saw, you know, talking about the fact that when Earth Day was launched, it was launched by Republican politicians in the U.S. And when Barry Goldwater was first laying out his view of, of conservatism, uh, it had a carve out for the environment. But by the time we got to the 80s, that went away. And that's mainly because there was sophisticated polling data based on location that showed that running against science was a good thing. So, you know, it's, of course, science needs to do everything we can to communicate the best we can, but it's really a political problem. And we're living through a time where we have uh, leaders in a lot of countries and, you know, the people in the U.S. tend to think that these problems are just in the U.S., but we have uh, India and China and Russia and even the United Kingdom, uh, a lot of places where um, leaders, uh, borderline autocratic leaders, or some people would say there already are autocratic leaders are in charge and they're weaponizing social media to, to fight against us. And so political change is ultimately the only way that we beat that back. Now, like I said, I'm hopeful that uh, there's an upper limit to this. Uh, there was a paper in, in Nature uh, about anti-vaccine sentiment, showing that there's a pretty strong slope in anti-vaccine sentiment. And that if you extrapolate it all the way out, eventually we'll have more anti-vaxxers than we have people who believe in vaccines. Now, they're making an assumption that that line keeps going up. So I hope they're wrong. <laughs> I hope that there's a level of sort of human rationality that eventually will kick in. But um, that's an optimistic view. The, the, the zero order assumption is that this is gonna keep going. And if it does, it's pretty dangerous. So. The people who are marching right now uh, and the people who are registering to vote, they're, they're helping us. And we should, we should I, I personally <laughs> am very supportive of what they're doing because we're, we're living through a very challenging and, and dangerous political environment around the world right now. That's right. Um, we, I think we have a lot of communicators, journalists in the audience. Um, and, and some of the questions that are coming in are, you know, are focused on how, how they can help, um, you know, so we touched on this, you know, the role of the media, but how, how communicators and journalists can earn the trust of scientists. It's an interesting question. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, that's, that's, um, that's really important. The AAAS has a lot of programming that are in, it's in the AAAS, not in the science family of journals. Um, that's aimed at this and I would encourage uh, people to check that out. One of the things that we do that I am a big fan of 
is <clears throat> trying to work with local journalism uh, to provide scientific experts to, to local journalists. Um, but I think the question you're asking is an, another interesting one, which is how do we get scientists to, to trust journalists? And like I said, I think you know, there are uh, science journalists who kind of span the spectrum from the folks who write from science all the way to people who are at large mainstream outlets. And the more interplay we have among that group, uh, the better. And so, um, you know, the, the, the journalists consulting other science journalists and consulting other scientists and having a, uh, a more uh, interactive dialogue among all of those parties is really the key to it. And, um, uh, you know, some, some of what uh, I worry about is that journalism sometimes tries to always have a quote from the people who disagree. Um, and journalists, you know, the journalists who write for me, who write for science, they're editorially independent from me. I don't tell them whether to do that or not. But if you're talking about, um, you know, if you're writing a climate story, do you have to have that comment from the, the Cato Institute? I mean, uh, that's a choice journalists make. Uh, I would say, you know, there's a little too much of that kind of bending over backwards to be fair to people who disagree with us uh, about things that we know are facts. Yeah. Because the thing about that, I think, you know, all excellent journalists uh, report facts as facts. And even if they have a different political slant than I do, uh, the ones that are at excellent organizations uh, report report facts as facts, and uh, in, interjecting opinions from people who disagree with those facts sometimes is um, counterproductive. So I guess I would challenge everybody to think about that when they're writing these stories. Yeah, no, it's a. I, I've sort of been learning how to communicate with journalists as a, as a scientist because I think we. At C4, we do a lot of sort of media interaction and, and our, our, our research does get picked up. And I mean, what I find is that we're often trying to be so precise. We are precise about our work and even just the word changes in the language. And then, you know, journalism is totally different. It needs to touch hearts and minds of, of the broader public. And so our precision, we have to let go of that in a way through interaction with media. And I, I found that the journalists who, who I've interacted with have sort of really helped me with that process and sort of walked me through it and saying, you know, we, can we say that a different way? Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think an excellent example of that is right now with vaccines. So, and, and with, with immunity to COVID. So we don't know for a fact that you become immune to COVID for more than three or four months because we haven't been studying for more than three or four months. So when someone asks a, a scientist, is there gonna be long-term immunity to COVID? Well, the absolute precise answer is we don't know. But if you amplify that, it says scientists don't know whether there will be a vaccine to COVID. Now, if you ask most people that I talk to about this, whether they believe there will be a vaccine and whether there's enough immunity 
that people get if they get the infection? Most of them will say yes, but it's very hard for, for scientists to say, yes, I believe there will be uh, immunity to COVID without saying, but I don't really know until I do all these experiments. And uh, if the public hears both of those things, then uh, it, make, it creates confusion. So there is a very challenging communications problem uh, between scientists talking the way we talk and having that be a simple enough message that it can be conveyed. And, you know, normally these things happen in the background and people who read our magazine during normal times, a few hundred thousand people every week, uh, don't see all this drama playing out. But now with uh, so much focus on science, we're seeing this all the time. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, okay, we have some other interesting questions, Taryn. I, I, it's, 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 it's related um, kind of to earlier questions. This, this question on inclusion. Um, so we have an audience member from Venezuela based in, in DC, you know, asking how to, to bridge some of these language divides. Um, you know, these, most of these high profile journals are English language journals. How are we reaching Spanish speaking and non-English speaking audiences? Uh, yeah, so science is, uh, uh, produces significant amounts of material that are in Spanish and, and Mandarin. Um, and we have a, uh, uh, we do all of our, um, the, the entity that writes up our articles for um, the media also writes them up in Spanish. Um, but uh, in general, I mean, of course, we need to do a lot more on that, um, both in terms of the stories that we do, which are very international in the news stories, and our authors are also very international. But, you know, it's a primarily an English language uh, publication. Um, so, you know, we need more partners translating our uh, stories into other uh, languages and other places. We are very um, open and accommodating and don't get hung up on copyrights and things when uh, journalists from other uh, news organizations around the world ask us if they can reprint our stories in um, uh, in their language, uh, wherever that is. And so uh, I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, who sees a science story that uh, they want to run somewhere in the world to let us know we have a, a group that handles that and we're, we're always very accommodating uh, and, and excited uh, for people to, to reprint our journalism around the world. Um, sort of along the, the inclusion lines and, and um, somebody was asking for specific examples of the underfunded areas of science that affect people of color, um, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, so um, for sure, uh, studies of racial disparities in healthcare, uh, that is an area that <clears throat> attracts a lot of researchers who are people of color, and uh, it's now very well documented uh, by us, uh, both in research articles and news articles. And there was another piece about it this morning in the Chronicle of Higher Education showing that um, there has been a, an underfunding of that area. And uh, before I um, 
came to DC, as you said, I was in St. Louis, and that's where some of the largest racial disparities in healthcare are anywhere in America. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's an area that uh, I would like to see us put more emphasis on. We have been doing some, but we'll do more. I think there are, I mean, one of the most heartbreaking things to think about on something like this is when you think about sickle cell disease, we've had the gene and the mute structure of the mutant protein for sickle cell disease for 60 some years. Uh, and we still don't really have an adequate way to treat that. It is a challenging scientific problem. Um, but uh, I think, you know, there are a lot of things like that uh, where progress has been inadequate. And that hasn't just been because these are hard scientific problems. It's because there hasn't been adequate uh, funding uh, for that research. And so we need to figure out how to use uh, our uh, imprimatur to drive uh, more activity in these fields. Uh, certainly also things in the social sciences around racial disparities in policing uh, and housing policy, school policy. These are all uh, unfortunately inadequately funded both by the federal government uh, ar around the world, but certainly in the United States and by the universities. Uh, you know, mo most universities have these programs, but they don't get as much funding as some of the more uh, the flashier uh, things that get more attention. And, you know, we, we have the ability to put a lot of attention on fields. So we need to start figuring out how we can do that to bring more attention to these disciplines that have been neglected. Yeah, that's great. Um, we, we have more questions about fake news here, I think, because okay, it's, just, sure. it's just so part of our reality now. Yeah. Um, and, and the question is, should scientists take a political stance against fake news? Um, in a way, I actually think your editorials are taking mm -hmm. a political stance in a certain way. But um, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, the, the way I've been writing the last two or three months, I've obviously decided there's really no reward in trying to stay out of politics. You know, we, science is three uh, things in our magazine. It's news, it's insights, which includes science policy, and it's research. And so it's certainly within our uh, remit to comment on politics uh, around the world uh, as it relates to science. Right now we're seeing a lot of what is going on in politics is related to science. So there's a lot to write about there. Uh, and that has been the case at Science Magazine over the years. You know, we just, it, the irony of this is, is, is devastating, but probably our most beloved editor-in-chief was Donald Kennedy, who was the, uh, had been the president of Stanford and he was also the editor-in-chief of science uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, he also was very outspoken about, uh, at that time, the Bush administration and his opinions about that. And sadly, he died of COVID. Um, if he was the editor-in-chief now and in his prime, he would be uh, blasting <laughs> Uh, the politicians for uh, not paying attention to COVID. So it was a tough, I, I didn't, unfortunately, I never 
got to know Don, but he was beloved by my colleagues and the the just the way things lined up that that he ended up passing away from COVID, I think just was a stark reminder of the fact that science and politics are in, intertwined with each other. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, you're active on Twitter, um, social media, you know, it, there is this line between sort of research advocacy, even what you retreat, retweet, what you like, what you comment on, it's, it's scientists are part of these conversations as, as humans and, and with all of our beliefs and, and ways that we think the world should be. Um, so we, I believe, you know, some of the, my favorite people to follow on Twitter, in fact, are scientists who are involved in these conversations actively and you know what their positions are. Oh, sure. And, and I, we don't shy away from that. I mean, our, our science is a, is a human endeavor carried out by human beings who have opinions and make mistakes and are right sometimes and not others and correct themselves and uh, interact in groups where there are psychodynamics. I mean, this is all part of science. And so to say that our opinions would somehow the off limits, I think, isn't consistent with um, how, because as, as we're seeing, uh, folks who think that science drops out of the sky in a textbook, uh, now that they're seeing it in real time, are really having a hard time processing what we all know, which is that, that science is this messy, hum, living human endeavor. And if we, have scientists who don't feel like they can express their opinions about things, uh, then, you know, we're cutting people off from the, the beauty and drama, really, of the, the human achievement that describing the world really uh, exemplifies. Yeah, no, that, that's right. Um, we, we're having a lot of social scientists, I think, are getting excited because you really frame that as sort of a a growing area in, in, in Science Magazine and, and the publications. And someone is asking about, you know, understanding behavior change and um, the kinds of qualitative data um, or studies needed to understand behavior and what, what drives behavioral change. Um, this is pretty interesting if we think about it in relation to COVID-19 or, or climate change. What, what is actually changing people's behaviors? Um, in terms of, of the decisions that we make as individuals and organizations in the context of these crises? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not the expert on that, but like I said, I have a colleague who is uh, swimming in these papers right now uh, and trying to figure out, um, you know, with this crisis, but also preparing for the next one, thinking about what, uh, changes behavior and we have data now on people's location and we may know how they voted or we at least know uh, how their location voted. Um, and so we're gonna be able to start uh, correlating these things in the months ahead. And I guess the hopeful thing would be if we can figure out uh, how, what drove behavior change in COVID Maybe we can figure out how that would change behavior on some of these longer term things we've been talking about, like structural racism and, and, and climate change and environmental racism. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we're, please, please let us know your ideas about that. And uh, uh, we're, we're very excited 
to hear uh, what people think and, and this connection between <clears throat> what we can do with technology now and things that social scientists have known for years, how can we connect those in a way that um, is helpful to people? And when we, we don't publish very many uh, social science papers, but over the last, during my time uh, as editor in chief, every time we've published one, it's gotten a ton of uh, media attention mm -hmm. um, and sometimes controversy, but that's okay. We like it when people are debating uh, the origins of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So I guess maybe message to scientists out there, interact with the editors um, at Science Magazine and, and throw ideas around and um, you know help influence actually the trajectory. Yeah. Science Most of our editors, many of our editors are, are on social media, certainly on Twitter. Um, their names are uh, in the mastheads of the, uh, of the journal. It's pretty easy to figure out which ones of them are in your field. And they're all, they're, the ones that are doing COVID <laughs> are very busy right now, but they're all extremely responsive and interactive. And um, if you need to get to the right person, you can write to me. My email is hthorp at aaas.org. That's uh, all over the world for anybody to find. Uh, and um, we'll, we, we look forward to interacting with folks uh, about their ideas. That's what, that's what we're here for. That's great. Well, thank you. I think we will, our time is at its end. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Holden Thorpe. You're a busy person and we appreciate you taking the time to be with the Global Landscape Forum. It's you're a special guest for us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join us again next week for another timely conversation about how the digital age is affecting how we talk about climate change. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>